0: Romans, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White.
1: Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother David. David, how's it going?
0: Been going pretty good, Neil.
1: Weather is warm out. It's a beautiful day to listen to a podcast, David. So, uh, should we do a podcast? I guess we could do a podcast. All right, you may have guessed this from the title, "O oh Brother, When Art Thou? But David's my brother,
0: and every episode I ask him, "O oh Brother, When Art Thou? Neil, it's June 22nd, 1772, and one of the great legal dramas of English history is coming to a close as Lord Chief Justice Mansfield finally waits to pronounce his judgment in the case of Somerset v. Stewart on the question of whether or not slavery is legal
1: in England. David, that is a big question that obviously
0: is going to have huge repercussions on people's lives. It's so big, in fact, that the previous month they'd been having an earlier hearing related to this case and the Earl of Mansfield famously said to both parties that they should settle the case rather than force him to come to a conclusion because the results of any decision would be so extreme whereas Just ignoring it, letting things slide, and settling would let them go to a more political rather than a legal process to determine the issue. But neither party was willing to settle, so we're coming to a conclusion.
1: That's a classic issue, David, that we still see playing out in courts and legislatures around the world today of of legislate versus adjudicate and whether things should be decided by the courts or by the elected officials but set the scene for us david in england in 1772 what was the situation
0: so it's england 1772 it's one of the most prosperous countries in the world a growing commercial society vibrantly rising now in the aftermath of the end of the Seven Years War which has brought a lot of prosperity to the English who won that war and now their colonial empire is growing at a rapid pace they've got America, they've got Canada, they've got India it's huge and money is flowing in and this means that with it the question of slavery has come in with the empire i mean now that they have all these colonies in many of these places slaves are used for agricultural labor and even though technically that doesn't have much to do with english law given the way that england's legal system is set up english law only covers the island of great britain itself and not the overseas colonies but People move back and forth, and when they move, sometimes they take what they consider their property to be with them. And when you have colonial possessions where slavery is legal, sometimes what they think is their property that they're bringing with them is slaves.
1: So, David, there isn't really slavery in England itself. It's a problem because of the colonies and people wanting to bring their
0: slaves now back to England. Mostly, yes. There's probably some slaves in service in England that have been for a while, but it's on a small scale. It's hard to say how many people it really impacted. But now, in the 1750s and 60s, you get a real uptick in the number of people, first off, who are of African descent, living in Britain, and secondly, who are enslaved and of African descent, living in Britain, driven by the growing empire. I mean,
1: obviously even one person in slavery is too many, but this problem is starting to grow now in England. So take us to the court case, David. I love a good legal drama. What is Somerset versus Stuart?
0: So in 1769, Charles Stewart, formerly a customs officer for the British government in the city of Boston, Massachusetts, good accent, thank you, is returning back to England and he's bringing with him all of his stuff, you know, everything, because he's moving home. And he takes with him James Somerset, an African slave who he bought in Boston, which was a slave trade port at the time, to serve as sort of his personal domestic servant. But somerset unsurprisingly is not happy being a slave and when he reaches england he thinks in this sort of laxer less slave-owning society maybe he can slip away so in 1771 he tries to run away gets to london but then he gets caught slave catchers haul him to a ship and Stuart decides that what he wants to do is get rid of this whole problem of a runaway slave by shipping him to Jamaica and selling him to work on the sugar plantations where he will almost certainly die. Somerset doesn't want that to happen. So Somerset sues Stuart? Well the problem initially is that he's locked up on a slave ship so it's kind of hard to you know, get in contact with a good lawyer. But luckily for him, he's got friends back in London and they've heard of Granville Sharp. Who is Granville Sharp? Who is Granville Sharp? Granville Sharp is kind of a crazy guy. He belongs to a family that's sort of political activists in Britain, well known for espousing various causes. They've got a family choir that does these... Sing alongs in public, and while he was doing these, he was practicing with his brothers. And one of his brothers was a doctor, and he found out that this doctor brother was actually under the table helping various free black people who lived in London who were being discriminated against and couldn't otherwise get access to medical services, which is how he gets involved in the abolition campaign. He just can't believe that there's all this discrimination and there's actual slavery going on in London and nobody's willing to talk about it and he sort of asks, you know, what's the law this is legal under, what's the details, and nobody's willing to explain So he decides he wants to fight it. He wants to be, he wants to go to court and, you know, fight the system. Fight the system, man, resist. He has three separate cases where he finds somebody in England who is enslaved and goes to court to try and get them emancipated, but more importantly, to try and have a test case a case where they will have to define the rules of slavery in England that he can then fight against something specific rather than this sort of irregular legal situation that was existing at the time where it's not really clear how slavery is legal or if slavery is legal Right,
1: so he needs one really good case to be the one to take all the way and to sort of make the big case that sets the precedent for the rules about slavery in England. How does Somerset end up becoming that case, David?
0: So the first case he takes on, the case of Jonathan Strong, is a tragic one. He finds a man who was beaten so severely for trying to run away that he was essentially crippled and then abandoned on the streets of London, and he tries to bring a suit against the men who did it for their violence, rather than specifically on the question of slavery. It ends up getting settled. There's two more. Again, they keep on being settled on legal technicalities rather than on the big issue that he wants to fight it on. But he keeps trying and it gets to Somerset and the thing about Somerset's case is that Charles Stewart doesn't want to settle. Granville Sharp has never wanted to settle. He's always wanted to have a big precedent case but his opponents have always preferred to settle rather than to have precedent actually get written that might go against them. But Charles Stewart only has one slave. He doesn't care about big precedence, he just has his pride on the line. He is saying, everything I've done has been legally and morally right, and I want to stand up for myself. I don't want you, you know, going behind my back and saying that what I did is wrong. So he doesn't want to settle. Is this just a pride thing, David? Because you mentioned earlier that
1: he was ready to get rid of Somerset. He wanted to sell him off to Jamaica, so... Why does he now want to get embroiled in this legal
0: battle? Well, it's a couple things. It's a money thing. Slaves are worth good money. Stewart is not a rich plantation owner. He's a guy who owned, as I've said, one slave. This is a lot of money that he stands to lose and not get back if he just gives up. It's a pride thing. He feels he hasn't done anything wrong and he doesn't want to back down. And then the other bit is it's not really his money that's going into this legal case because the various plantation owners who live in England, even if their plantations aren't in England, are worried about the effects of a big pro-abolition precedent being set in a case like this. So they're actually willing to fund Stewart's legal defense out of their own pockets just to make sure that he doesn't hire somebody incompetent and then blow it all and get a terrible precedent set for them. But that means for him there's really no downside to fighting this case all the way. All right, David, so we're headed to trial. What happens? So the trial is extremely long. It starts in January and it ends in June. So that tells you a little bit about we're not talking about a short in and out kind of trial. They fight over every legal technicality that they can find and they can certainly find a lot of legal technicalities. That's what the law is great at isn't it? Technicalities. There are so many technicalities in this case in particular because it's about property law but one side is unwilling to accept that property is the appropriate you know conceptual framework to be working in it's a complicated case which means a lot of technicalities which means it's very long which means a lot of money is being spent by both sides which means that both sides start raising money from the public in order to pay for it which in turn makes it political suddenly people are making an effort to make sure that everybody hears about this case which in turn means that everybody in England is hearing about this case they're debating it and that has a big impact because it means that people need to think about slavery in a way that maybe most people in England would prefer to just ignore it and you know hope it never affects them rather than get involved so now the slavery debate is full-on raging in england
1: it's not just some obscure legal case this is at the top of mind of british citizens arguments that we're hearing in this trial
0: david so on the public side both sides one will appeal to emotion rather than to the sort of legal technicalities that are taken up especially the early portions of this trial. For Mr. Stewart his lawyers make a series of arguments based on the consequences, the consequences especially the economic consequences of abolishing slavery. They want people to be afraid that if slavery goes away the money is going to go away the prosperity of this period in England is going to go away there's going to be free black people running around the streets of London like animals they want to make sure that people are afraid of the economic and social consequences of emancipation
1: sort of a classic populist fear-mongering talking about economics
0: when really the issue is race on the other hand of course Somerset's lawyers want to make a moral argument. They don't want to talk about the consequences. They want to talk about why slavery is wrong. There's a famous speech made by one of Somerset's lawyers and published in multiple newspapers at this time. His famous central line is... The air of England is too pure to be breathed by a slave. And he claims that this is an idea of antiquity that, you know, has been mentioned probably by a king or something. It's not really clear where the line came from. But he says that's definitely a thing that everybody agrees is true. And the way we should interpret it is that nobody in england is or can be a slave because our country is too good for that and that's the theme that somerset's lawyers are really hammering on as the trial goes on in the public's mind they're hammering on slavery is bad everybody knows it in their heart of hearts nobody's going around being like yeah i super want to be a slave That's something I want to happen to me, so it's bad and we should just stop, you know? Why keep doing it? So those are the public arguments. Are they
1: very different from the legal arguments, David? Is there anything we need to know about the trial itself?
0: So for Stewart's side, the legal arguments and the public arguments are very similar. But for Somerset's side, not so much. Somerset's lawyers are arguing that, quite simply, there is no law legalizing slavery in England. There's nothing written down. And slavery is not something you can just say, sure, it's fine or whatever. Like, it's pretty clear that what slave owners actually do is kidnapping and assault Unless you've got some kind of specific authority to do it. And Somerset's lawyers are saying, we've looked through all the law books, we've gone through all the boring parliamentary records, and we just can't find anywhere where it says, yeah, this is actually legal, guys. That's interesting, David. I mean, I'd hate
1: to be the guy who had to go through all the boring law books and parliamentary records, but
0: good on them to go through them and realize that hey this isn't legal part of this is granville sharp himself again uh granville famously got into a theological dispute on details of the new testament and taught himself ancient greek so that he could read the original and get new arguments to try and win that debate so he's a guy who is willing to put in the work to try and win a debate or in this case a court case but there's an interesting twist here because it turns out that there actually is one thing written down saying that yeah, slavery is totally legal but it's not actually a law it's not quite a binding precedent under common law either it's just a thing some judges wrote saying if we ever ruled on a case about slavery, which we have not done, this is the way we would rule, and you should too. But under the common law system of England at the time, that's not binding. A judge doesn't have to follow it, but he can follow it. So now, the Earl of Mansfield, the Lord Chief Justice, the highest court in the land... Here in this case, after all of the appeals and everything, has to decide. Is he going to stick with that kind of vague, definitely bought by the Virginia plantation owner's statement, or is he going to carve out a new path and come to a different decision?
1: I always find these legal cases interesting, David, because there's always this slight discrepancy between the public arguments and the big question that we're asking is slavery moral, is it right, versus the legal questions that get asked of is this obscure precedent binding or not binding and should we stick with it or not stick with it. The legal system is getting at the same issues as the public would like it to, but often in a weird or roundabout way. So it all comes down to Judge Mansfield and June 22nd, 1772, he's ready to rule on this case date. He is ready
0: to rule, and everybody in this courtroom has a right to be nervous because remember, last month in May, when he explicitly from the bench asked both parties to just settle and not make him make a ruling, He'd given a speech, and he said, in the famous Latin turn of phrase, Fiat justitia, ruat
1: silum." David, my Latin is rusty. You better translate that for me. Which
0: translates as, Do justice, though the heavens fall. Even in English, I'm still not sure I know what that means. His point was that he was going to rule on this case not on the economic consequences not on the moral arguments but on the laws of England on strictly what the actual legal casebook said and nobody can agree what that means he's gonna actually say here on June
1: 22nd so this court case is going to be decided based on the law.
0: David, drumroll, what is the decision? So the Earl of Mansfield begins reading out the ruling from the full panel of justices at the High Court of Justice Assembled. And he begins with the statement that slavery is so awful a thing that it can only be established anywhere by the action of positive law and then he goes on to say that since he has found nowhere in the laws of England a positive law created to legalize slavery he cannot find in this case for Mr. Stewart and therefore Mr. Somerset is free to go as a free man in England Yes, a big victory, David.
1: That is a good thing. So does this end slavery in
0: England? So yes and also no. So this does end slavery in England, which is awesome. But there's two sort of big caveats. The first one is it's only on the island of Great Britain itself that slavery is now no longer a thing in the colonies the west indies in africa itself slavery is still going strong even in places where england rules over them slavery's not ended there that's a pretty big caveat that's a big caveat there's another one smaller lord mansfield later on in a couple of cases tries to argue that people are taking his precedent too broadly when they say It was supposed to end slavery and he has some detailed arguments about how it's not exactly ending slavery but ultimately no one really cares no one's willing to own a slave in England because it just seems so illegal now you know it's just people have the idea that it's illegal and even if there might be arguments in court where a judge might favor you the risk that a more, you know, sane judge will say, no, you are kidnapping that guy, you should go to jail, is just too high for anyone to actually own slaves in England any further. So for the small but still morally important group of enslaved people in England, this is huge because suddenly they're free. But also for world history more broadly, the Big effect here is that Granville Sharp and his team are going to go on fighting for abolition not just in England but around the world and they're going to push some of the biggest most successful measures to end the slave trade and they're going to inspire other people who keep on pushing to abolish the slave trade. And this is some of the earliest abolitionists to have real success. And that means that no matter how small this one case actually is, its moral effect globally is just amazingly important.
1: A big victory in the courts, David, that's brought about in a somewhat strange way, maybe not the way you'd expect the big... Moral victory that was decided on a legal question, not a moral question But I guess that's just the way it goes in court sometimes Thanks for telling us this story, David Always happy to tell these, Neil And then if you want to hear the story of the first place in the British Empire that would Actually legislate an end to slavery Because we talked, David, about how this was a judicial decision and not a legislative decision the first place that would legislate an end to slavery in the British Empire was actually Upper Canada, what is now Ontario. And that story is available in podcast form. That's right. We covered it in episode 21 The Lieutenant Governor and the Slave. So go back and listen to episode 21 because that's a fun episode as well. And be sure you follow O oh Brother When Art Thou on social media and also on your favorite podcast app give us a like, subscribe, give us a rating we really appreciate it and uh, you'll be able to hear all the episodes as they come out so David, usually we like to end these with a fun quiz are you up for a quiz today? I could do a quiz Neil one of these days you're going to refuse me but so far it hasn't happened we always end with a quiz And since the Women's World Cup is going on, David, I thought uh, we could do a quiz about soccer. How do you feel about a history of soccer quiz? Tell me what you got. All right, I think this will be a little bit more fun. I leaned on the history side more than the soccer side, David, since I know you're not a big sports guy. Sounds good. Let's start at the beginning. The first attempt to bring together a collection of rules for soccer was made at the University of Cambridge in 1848. The chancellor of the university that year was this prince. Prince in 1848. Yeah, he was the chancellor of the University of Cambridge, where they were trying to come up with a set of rules for the game of soccer, or football, in England. Wouldn't be Prince William, would it? It was actually Prince Albert, the husband of Queen Victoria. He became the university's chancellor in 1847. Huh. So it is the Women's World Cup that's going on right now, David, and the first Women's World Cup was in 1991. It was named after this candy invented in the 1930s after Forrest Mars saw candies being eaten by soldiers in the Spanish Civil War. 1930s candy? Yeah, Forrest Mars invented this candy uh, based on a candy that he saw soldiers eating during the Spanish Civil War. It wouldn't be the Mars bar, would it? No, it's not. It's actually the Uh M&M. He saw soldiers eating the British Smarties, which were a hard candy around a chocolate so that it wouldn't melt in your hands. And he invented the M&M, which proved popular with the U.S. Army for exactly that reason. It didn't melt in your hand. And the first FIFA World Championship for women's football was the M&M's Cup, believe it or not. All right, David, moving on with our soccer history quiz. England and Germany have faced off twice in world wars, in history, and twice in penalty shootouts. England won both wars, but how many soccer penalty shootouts have they won against Germany? I'll guess one. Zero. Britain came up short in both of the penalty shootouts. Germany won 4-3 in the 1990 World Cup and 6-5 in the 1996 Euro. We know him by the single name Pele, However, the man who is perhaps the greatest soccer player of all time shared a name with this inventor, perhaps the greatest inventor of all time.
0: Ah,
1: I'll guess Thomas Edison. That's right. His full name is Edison Arantes Donacimento. I know my pronunciation isn't great, but that's Pele's full name. All right, David, one last question for you. We'll go back to women's soccer since it is the Women's World Cup going on right now. The American women's soccer team, the defending champions at this World Cup, have filed a federal discrimination lawsuit against their national federation alleging institutionalized gender discrimination. Which president signed the Equal Pay Act in the United States, abolishing wage disparity based on sex? Equal Pay Act? Ooh, I really don't know. Possibly Jimmy Carter? earlier than that david it was actually john f kennedy in 1963 he signed the act as part of his new frontier program so it seems pretty ridiculous that they have to sue for these exact issues in 2019 but here we are david and uh, a legal question to end off our legal podcast thanks for playing along always
0: happy to and thanks for listening